as you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to finish the fourth chapter today. I've been in Hebrews for a little bit. Um, thank you, Phil, for leading us in the Apostles' Creed. It's fun that each week we get to come and, and we just recite the gospel. I know sometimes we look at it and it's strange. We don't always recite creeds. That might be something new for you. Um, but when you go through, it's just these, these core tenets of the faith. And sometimes we get a little hung up because it says Catholic, but that's, that just simply means universal body of Christ, referring to uh, all those who believe in Jesus Christ are one in his body. And so uh, I'll just let you know your outline, your outline is worthless today pretty much. Uh, so Rachel was going to be gone, and so she was like, hey, if you could have it to me a little bit early, that would be great. I said, no problem. And, and then it changed. So uh, feel free to um, just write notes wherever. But just the first one's pretty close. But I don't, I don't know if the rest of the outline is going to really work for you. Um, I'm excited about this text. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is an incredible text that we have in this book. And if you're new, like if this is your first Sunday to join us, what we do is we, we make our way through books of the Bible, and we're preaching through them, and currently we're in the book of Hebrews. And this text is a beautiful text that really summarizes where we've been, where we've gone, or where we're going, and really the whole message of Hebrews. So if, you're, if this is your first Sunday, consider yourself caught up, okay? Like this text just encapsulates the message of Hebrews. Um, this text also, it's going to destroy false ideas. False ideas like, like you must clean yourself up before coming to God. False ideas like God doesn't hear you when you pray. False ideas that say, if Jesus is God, then he can't really understand your pain. Or other false ideas that say, once you come to Jesus, you won't have any problems. That's the prosperity gospel. This text is like a torpedo targeting each of those lies and destroying them. Um, I, can't, I can't emphasize this text enough. This is a good, good text that we're going to be in. So I, I want to just kind of to jump in and, and kind of get our hearts ready and prepared for, for where this text is going and, and why it is so good. So I want to start with just some questions. Are you hurting? This text is addressing a hurting people. Are you lonely? You wrestle with sadness. Do you feel worn out in life right now? Do you ever have those times where you feel like you're just running up one of those descending escalators? And the faster you run, the faster it's going down, and so you're not actually making any progress? Is life hard? We're talking about a church here that's been persecuted, that's been arrested, that's been beaten, and they're tempted to abandon the faith. Life is hard, and life can be very hard for us too, for many, many ways. We can be tempted to give up, to stop running. You might be here, and you're just in a difficult marriage right now. Maybe finances have been hard. Maybe... 
Maybe you look at your life and you just go, man, I've messed up a lot of times. Have I messed up too many? Have I shipwrecked my faith? Does God even want me anymore because of the things I've done? Have you ever thought that? Have you wrestled with those thoughts? You probably know people that have. Do you wonder if there's actually victory and hope over certain sins? Or are you just destined to fail over and over and over again? You ever, you ever experience that where there's just certain sins and you're just like, I keep running into that. Let me ask you, are you angry? It's like, no. <laughs> Do you feel like a volcano? Where you just like you're just pent up. At any moment you could just burst. Do you grumble? Are you frustrated? Do you feel just overwhelmed with life? I just want you to know this text is for you. Like this is exactly what this text is addressing today. Now you might be here and you're saying, that's that's not me at all. Praise God right? Like, praise God. Like, we we don't necessarily want those questions to describe us. Sometimes they do, and if they don't right now, praise God. But this text is for you also, because our lives revolve around trials. You're either going into a trial, you're either in a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. That's life, right? You're in one of those. You're either God's preparing you for in one, you're in one, you're coming out of one. We're all hope we're just coming out, right? But we know, we know the way life goes. And so this church, this text is meant to fortify our faith. It's meant to strengthen our faith for those trials that we will stand firm in them. Again, this church has been persecuted, they've been arrested, they've been beaten, their property has been taken from them. They're debating about abandoning the faith and going back to Judaism. In the first century, Judaism was legal. If they are a Jew practicing Judaism, they will not be persecuted. So that's what they're wrestling. And so that's why throughout this book, he will regularly be showing the foolishness of going back to Judaism. And how all of Judaism ultimately points to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see how this text is meant to fortify our faith, to strengthen us. And so I want you to think of the author of this text like a father. It's probably Mother's Day. It would have been better if I went with mothers, but whatever. The way the illustration is going, think of him like a father. And he has a son, and his son is sad. His son is discouraged. He's had a hard day, and so his son is in his room, so the father comes in, and he sits on the side of the bed, he places his hand on his son's, on his son's head, and he just draws him near, so that he feels the warm embrace of the father. The son is choking back some tears. He just had a hard day. And then the father just whispers some truths into the son's ears. And as he whispers these truths, the son begins to feel excitement and joy and hope. That's what this text is meant to do. That's what it's meant to do to our souls today as we come to it. So I pray 
that wherever you're at, that this, soul, that this text makes your soul well. That you would burst forth in praise because of the truth that we're going to see. And that your, your faith would be strengthened and fortified today. And so, one thing we do here is we stand at the reading of God's word. So I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand. We stand because this word comes forth from God inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It comes with his full authority for the purpose of equipping us. So as, as this text is read, just remember what we saw last week. God is speaking. We're encountering God. And he is using this text to equip us right now. Chapter 4, verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, Father, I pray that, that our eyes would be open today to the beauty of your word, that your spirit would just awaken in us the ability and the desire to see your truth, and that we would see it as beautiful, as gracious, as good, and that, Lord, as we walk through this text today, we would understand that your son Jesus is God and is man and he has come to save us from our sins, that we would have constant access to the throne of grace and you would give grace to us every time we come to you. And Lord, may we be overwhelmed with that truth and may that truth make our souls well. That there is grace for us every single day. And so Lord... Equip us now with your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I'm pretty sure the, the, the only point that is the same in your outline is the Christian faith is confessional. Verse 14, we read that Jesus is our great high priest, and he's the son of God. And the, the author says, hold on to that confession. Now, this is not the first time he uses the word confession. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, We need to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In Hebrews chapter 10, 23, he's also going to say, Hold on to your confession. He's calling us to run the race, to not give up, to keep the faith. He, he's also telling us what he's going to tell us in chapter 6. Move on to maturity. Keep growing in the faith. And so, the word confession, it refers to the doctrines of our Christian faith. It refers to the very things that we believe. What we understand is, is our faith, our faith is not built upon ideas or feelings that change as culture changes. Do you know that? Our, our, our faith 
is not like a sandcastle that you build and then the waves come and wash against it. And with every attack of the wave, it pulls away some of the sand. So eventually that sandcastle just kind of dissolves back into nothing. But our faith is built upon the enduring truth of God's word. And two unchanging truths that we see in verse 14 is that Jesus is the Son of God and he is our great high priest. In other words, he is God and he is man. We need to see that. To deny either one of those truths is to deny Christianity. You will lose the Christian faith if either one of those is not true. So he's saying, this is our confession. Hold on to it. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And as we come back and we look in chapter 5 next week, we're going to dig more into what it means that Jesus is the great high priest and how that contrasts with the other priests that we see in the Old Testament. But I want to just look, I want us just to notice a couple of things here. We'll first consider the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. If you were with us in the beginning, Hebrews 1, the author begins this beautiful display of just who Jesus Christ is. And he tells us in Hebrews 1, the first couple verses, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature, meaning to see Jesus is to see the glory of the Father. We're told that Jesus is, uh, is not the first created being, but he's the one who created all things. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. So what that means is God didn't make the Son, and then the Son made everything else. There's other religions that believe that. We would call those false religions because they deny the eternality of the Son, that he is one with the Father. And so this is why that in chapter 1, we will read Jesus created all things. He's the heir of all things. And we're told that right now with his word, he sustains everything. The Bible teaches that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is infinitely powerful and eternally glorious. That is the Son. That's who we worship. That's who has come and died for us, that we would have everlasting life. So confession number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Number two, Jesus is the high priest. Now this isn't the first time that the author has mentioned the fact that Jesus is the high priest. Back in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he introduced Jesus as the high priest. And so what I want to do is, is go back and refresh our memory of what he said there. So you can go back to chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Uh, just so you all remember, chapter numbers are the big numbers. Uh, verses are the small numbers. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers. This is Jesus. Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to absorb God's wrath because of the sins of the people. That's what propitiation means. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Three things we need to see. Number one, Jesus became man. We see that he was made like his brothers in every 
respect. Meaning, as human as you are, Jesus came in the flesh in every respect as you and I are. Number two, because he is man, he became our great high priest. So he could make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And the crazy thing is, he's not only the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the perfect high priest who represents us before God, and then he's the perfect sacrifice who is able to absorb the wrath of God and atone for our sins. Number three, because he is man and was tempted as we are, he's now able to help us in our suffering. It's this last point that the author's picking up now. You see, in chapter 2, he introduces the fact Jesus is our high priest, and he starts unpacking these truths, and then he pauses And he wants us to know how important the fact that Jesus is our great high priest and how applicable that is. And so then he takes chapters 3 and 4 to prepare us to come back to chapter 4 where he will introduce once again that Jesus is our high priest. And we'll look at how he does that in a little bit. But notice how Jesus helps us in our pain and suffering. Look at verse 15. And in verse 15, it seems... As though the author is correcting a false view of Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So when you read it, what does that tell you? There probably are some people who think that Jesus is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, now why would they think that? Well, one reason might be when we go back to verse 14, where is Jesus right now? He is past through the heavens so what we understand is jesus came in the flesh he lived for 30 plus years he died on a cross three days he died and he rose again on the third day where then he he appeared to many of his disciples to many of those who followed him did that for about 40 days and then at the end of that time he's now ascended to what we saw in the apostles creed where he sits at the right hand of the throne of god And so right now, Jesus is in heaven with the Father. And so there are some people that seem to be saying, can Jesus really know what I'm going through when he's way up there? I mean, he's kind of far away, isn't he? How can he know our pain and our circumstances? Have you ever heard that? Can he really know what we're going through? Maybe you've thought that. Does he know my pain? Can he help me? So let's look at what the text says. We see that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now the word sympathize means compassion that helps. So this isn't like one of those guys that says, ooh, you're hurting. I hope things go better for you. And he does nothing about it. He's a very compassionate person. Not really. He just gave you, you know, he just spoke some nice words, but he's not doing anything. But what we're told is Jesus is compassionate. He's filled with that anguish. He understands your pain, and then it moves him to help. And the word weakness is referring to the fact, it's referring to Jesus' humanity, that he has shared humanity. He understands our weaknesses because he is human. Now, we've said this many times in the past. 
And if you're new here, we talk about superheroes a lot. Primarily, we'll use Marvel superheroes and good examples and DC superheroes um, for negative examples. Okay? That's just the way it works around here. Um, There's a whole theology around it, I'm sure. But here it is. Jesus is not like Superman. You see, Superman comes, he looks like one of us, he acts like one of us, but does he know our pain? Does he feel our suffering? No. He's not actually one of us, and he doesn't actually get hurt like we do. So Jesus is not like Superman. He's fully human. He comes in the flesh that he would share in all of our humanity so that, just as we read in verse 15, he is tempted in every respect as we are, and those temptations are real. We have to understand this. When we come through the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus is God, and he is truly human in every single way. So do not think, well, Jesus was God. His temptations weren't really a temptation. No, he is human. He faces temptations. We're told he is tempted in every respect, yet he did not sin. Jesus was mistreated by family. Rejected by the masses, abandoned by his disciples, he was alone, he was betrayed by close friends, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was denied, and yet he never sinned. He never grumbled, he never was unrighteously angry. He never gossiped, he never slandered, he never lusted over what he didn't have, he never sinned. Isn't that incredible? C.S. Lewis, uh, he helps explain this idea of Jesus' temptation. And so I want to read, it's a little bit lengthy passage, but, but I want you to track with this passage and, and, and see what it says about, about temptation. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation, know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Make sense? That is why bad people in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Isn't that good? You get that? You know the power of temptation by resisting it. And Jesus knows the depths and the pains of every temptation because he never, ever gave in. Jesus became our high priest so he would know our temptation to the absolute 
fullest capacity. He knows our hurt and our pain more than anyone else can understand. And get this, you must know this and believe this. He knows your pain more than you know your pain. You get that? Because he knows exactly what your temptation is. He knows exactly the strength of that temptation. But he never, ever gave in. And so he knows the full, pow- the full power of misery and anguish. Now, why is this important? It's because in verse 16, we're given an incredible promise. And the promise is based upon the truth in verse 15, which that truth is based upon verse 14. So you got to see, we have, we have this confession. Jesus is God. He is man. Okay? Those two truths exist. Because Jesus is man, he is our great high priest, he is perfect, he has never sinned. We have these two truths, and based upon these two truths, we now have a promise. Without these truths, there is no promise. Okay? Makes sense? The truths are the basis of the promise. And so let's look at verse 16. He says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So here's the promise. Jesus promises grace when we come to the throne of grace. Okay? Jesus promises grace when we come to to the throne of grace. Just, just think through that. So I want to pause now. I want to make sure we understand exactly how chapter 4, verses 14 to 60, 16, not 60, um, fit within the context of Hebrews. Chapter 2, the author introduces the idea of Jesus as the high priest. And he says, I, I need you to know how applicable this truth is. I need you to know how necessary it is. And so he tells the church, don't be like Israel in the Old Testament when they came out of, Ex- when they came out of Egypt. And they came to the brink of the promised land, but then they did not believe in God. They did not trust in God. They rebelled against the word of God. And therefore, we're told they did not enter his rest. They did not experience the fullness of God's salvation. And so he's saying, I don't want you to experience that. And so he says, let me give you two ways in which you will continue to grow in your faith and not be like Israel. Number one, we see in chapter 3, verse 13, where he exhorts us, where he, he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So means number one in which we are to grow in the faith is Christian community. And as Christian community, we are called to exhort one another. We're called to encourage one another in what? The truth that Jesus Christ is our high priest who has come and has been tempted in every way we are, which is what we read in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, and he's able to help us. So we're, we're told to encourage one another in who Jesus Christ is. Number two, this is what we looked at last week, the Word of God, where the Word of God is living and active, and God uses it to, to grow us in our faith, to expose any sin, and that we would become more and more like him. And what does God's word do? It points us to the Son of Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
think I said that wrong. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who comes as our high priest, that he would die on a cross for us and be able to help us in our time of need. And so now he's come full circle right back to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, and he's going to give us a third means in which we are to stand firm in our faith. Christian community, we encourage one another in the priesthood of Jesus. Number two, the Bible directs us to understand the priesthood of Jesus, who he is, what he has done for us, that we could continue to walk in faith. Number three, he now says, we're told that Jesus is our high priest, so we can come to the throne of grace anytime we need help. And so I ask you, what word do we use as Christians when we ask God for something? When we come to God for help, when we ask for help, what's the Christian word we use? You can go ahead, we'll we'll make this interactive. This is pass and fail, so, you know, there is a right and wrong answer. It's prayer, right? We come to him. So Jesus is promising every time we pray, grace coming from the throne of grace. Every time you pray to God, throne room is open, grace is coming from where? From the throne of grace. Of grace. Do you hear that promise? Every time you pray, God gives grace. You need help? God gives grace. I want you to think those, those four lies that we looked at in the intro. And I said this, this text destroys those lies. Just, just take a moment. Let's see. Number one, you must clean yourself up before coming to God. That's ridiculous. This church, this church is hurting, they're in pain, they're suffering, they're struggling in their faith, and the author doesn't say, get it right, and then come to Jesus. He just says, pray, come to the throne of grace, and God will give you grace. So are you hurting today? Are you struggling? No, you can pray, and God will give you grace. Number two, God doesn't hear you when you pray. No, that's a lie. Jesus came as our great high priest so he would stand at the right hand of God interceding for you and I so every time we pray, the Father hears our prayers. And what happens? You receive grace on the basis of Jesus as our high priest every time we pray. Number three, Jesus can't understand our pain. No. He is human in every way that you are. He knows our pain. He knows our misery. He knows our anguish. And he he knows it so well that whatever you and I are struggling with, he knows exactly how to give grace and mercy. Do you know that? Like, have you ever had someone who's hurting? And, and, I mean, it, it can just be this massive story they tell you of pain and misery. And you're kind of like deer in the headlights, and they're saying, can you help me? Have you ever had that? And you're like, maybe? And you have no clue what to say at that moment. Have you ever been in that, those shoes? I feel like I'm in those a lot. And you're just kind of sitting there going, I, I, this, this is crazy what this person's gone through, the pain, the hurt, the misery. How do I help? Jesus never struggles with that. He 
understands your pain, your hurt, your temptation, that he always knows not just the grace that you should get, but exactly what kind of grace and what kind of mercy, exactly how you need to be strengthened, exactly what will make your soul well. Isn't that incredible? Every time you come to him, he will give you exactly the grace you need in perfect measure. Number four, once you come to Jesus, you won't have problems. I mean, that is the prosperity gospel. If you believe enough in Jesus, he will give you all the blessings now. See, what, what we understand God's word to show is that when we believe in Christ, we are given every blessing there is. But remember what we have talked about our salvation. Salvation is not just about starting the race, it's about finishing the race as well. And while we have all of God's blessings, we don't fully experience those until he returns at the end of the race in the new heavens and new earth. So we're promised, we're given, but we won't fully experience. But the prosperity gospel says, no, you get them all today, right now in their fullest capacity. And so if you struggle with health, if you have bad days, that's just simply because you don't believe enough. You need to believe harder. You need to do a better job. Now, let's just say that's true. Let's just say that's true. What would the text say then? What would the text say? We're writing to a church that's struggling in their faith, thinking about abandoning Judaism, or abandoning the faith, going back to Judaism. So what would he say? Have more faith, church. Suck it up. What's your problem? Read your Bible more. Do harder. Do, do harder. Do harder. Do more. Try harder. Believe more. Yeah, he, 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 he turns them and says, just come to the throne room of grace. Come to the throne room of grace. And Jesus will give you help in time of need. Why would we ever need help if we're supposed to be perfect right now in every way? Prosperity gospel is lies. And, it, and many, many people fall prey to that. Some of the biggest churches, not only here in America, but all throughout the world, are prosperity gospel churches. Because you go to poor countries in Africa, and you promise them that they'll have everything right now in Jesus. That sounds really good. But all it does leave a wake of destruction. What we see here that Jesus saves us by grace. And he says, whenever you need help, you can come and you can pray and God will give you grace. Just think about what this tells us about the heart of God in the Christian life. God doesn't save you and say, good luck. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't say, great, you're saved. You've started the race. I'll see you at the finish line. Hope you get there. Like he doesn't say that, but rather what we see, you're saved by grace. And then he says, I'll give you grace every step of the way to run the race. We're not meant to run it in our own power, in our own strength. Jesus says, come to the throne of grace, ask for grace, and you will receive grace. So I, I want to go back. We asked some questions kind of in the beginning. So let me just ask a few more questions. What are you going through today? 
What's going on in life? Are you wrestling with difficult relationships, with finances, wrestling with a, different, a difficult diagnosis? Are you worn out fighting a particular sin? Come to the throne of grace. Pray. He's saying pray. And on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and our high priest, he will give grace. Do you need help standing in your faith, standing firm in your faith today? Do you need help to share the gospel with boldness? That you wouldn't be paralyzed by fear? He says, come to the throne of grace. Do you need help overcoming anger, frustration, grumbling? You grumble? You're like, no, I don't grumble. Yeah, we grumble about not grumbling. He says, come to the throne of grace. Do you need help to love your wife or your husband? Do you need help to embrace singleness? Come to the throne of grace. And so a question might be at this moment, so what does that look like? Okay, so let's say we have this problem, we're in a trial, and we come, and we say, God, I need grace. So what's that going to look like when he gives us grace? And so um, the Bible actually gives us quite a few examples of what it looks like to give grace. So I just want to give one example from the life of the Apostle Paul, and this comes from 1 Corinthians 12. So I'm going to read it, uh, first, or, no, sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. So it's a little bit lengthy, but let me read, and then we're going to talk through it. So it says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a throne was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from, being con- from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Okay, so we got prayer here, right? He's in a trial. Three times I said, God, I need grace. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so God's given Paul some incredible visions. In fact, earlier in that chapter, he talks about, I was taken up to the third heaven. And so in heaven, God is given Paul these, these visions. And just like you and me, if we were given some incredible visions, what might happen? We might become kind of prideful, kind of conceited, think highly of ourselves. And so we're told, so to keep me from becoming conceited, God has given them this thorn of flesh, the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now, we honestly don't really know what that is. I mean, we could take some educated guesses, but in reality, it comes down, we're not sure. But here's something we can know. Thorn of flesh does not sound pleasant, right? Like, I think we can all be on the same page. So whatever this thorn in his flesh is, we know it's not good. We know, we know it doesn't feel good. It hurts. It's causing pain, whether it's actually bodily or there's something outside of him, a pressure that's coming upon him. He is wrestling with this pain, with this trial. And it's so much, he says, God, I want you to take it from me. I need help, God. He comes to the throne of grace. And what we see 
is that he doesn't take it away, but he gives him grace. In fact, he gives him so much grace that Paul is satisfied so that he will say, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses. Now think about that. He doesn't take the trial away. He doesn't take the thorn away. But he gives him grace so that Paul's now able to say, for the sake of Christ, I'm content and weak. I'm okay. I'm okay in this trial now. This thorn, I'm okay with it. Would he choose it? No. Does he want it? No. But he's okay because God's grace is sufficient. So he says, I'm content. And I'm so content now in weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions, that I realize that when I'm weak, I am strong. So now God's grace has actually not only made him content, but moved him to praise and worship of God. God's grace satisfies him in this trial. So I want you to think about it like this. Um, my wife and I were, were re-landscaping our front yard for various reasons. Some of you might know. We've dug some holes. Now we're re-landscaping. And, uh, and so we, we put a tree in. And some of you might have planted a tree before. And, and, and there's a danger if you plant a tree and, and then a wind, big windstorm comes, right? What could happen to a small, fragile tree in a giant windstorm? It could just get blown over, right? It's not strong enough. It, it can't endure that. And so let's say you plant a tree and there's strong winds coming It beat against this tree and so it knocks it over. So what do you do? You go and you get a stake. You take that stake and you drive it deep into the ground next to that tree. Then you anchor that tree to the stake and now that wind comes back. And it comes back harder and even more fierce. But what happens to that tree? It's held firm by the sake. It still goes through the trial, but now it's held firm. That's what we learn here. Do you see it? God, God says, you're in a trial? You can come. You can come to the throne of grace all day long, and I will give you grace. But let us not think that he's just going to change our circumstances, come in and swoop in and, and just change it. He might, and praise God when he does that, right? Like, we love those days. But when we look at the text, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they still go into the fire. Daniel still goes into the lion's den. We still see God's people go through difficult times, so we know he doesn't always just sweep in and radically change the circumstance. But he gives you the grace you need to endure, and that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 where it talks about how no temptation has overcome you or has come to you that's not common to man, but God will give you the grace to escape. And then he explains what that escape means, that you may endure it. So escaping is not being pulled away, but be giving the grace to endure the trial that you are in. The hard part about this, and this is where you and I are going to struggle, we don't like to think of ourselves as weak, okay? We don't, we don't like that. We don't necessarily wake up and go, I'm a, I'm a pretty weak person. And if you're new in the faith, it can be hard to wrestle with the idea that you're weak. But this is especially hard the more mature you are in your faith too. 
Because we often equate maturity with independence, right? Like we want all of our kids to mature and be independent and move out, right? But in the Christian faith, maturity is seen as independence upon God. The more mature we are, the more dependent we become on God. And so one of the, one of the reasons we don't actually pray and come to this throne of grace and receive grace in trials is because we think too highly of ourselves. We, we think we're strong. And when we think we're strong, we don't come to our Savior, to our Redeemer, to our great high priest who has grace just waiting for us. He said, just, just ask and I will pour forth grace. I want you to think how often we as Christians, we go through trials and our pain and our suffering and our strength and we do that for weeks or months or years. And we never come to the throne of grace. And yet, this text, like a giant neon sign on the side of a building that says open, this text is saying the throne room of grace is open. If you're struggling, pray. Whatever it is, pray. You can ask God for grace, and he will give you grace today to strengthen you no matter what you are going through. Isn't that good news? And so now the text is preparing us to now understand what it means that Jesus is this great high priest, which is what's going to dominate chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 in the book of Hebrews. So he's prepared us now. Jesus is our high priest. We come to him and he gives grace. Everything we believe about God and our gospel is based upon the fact that Jesus has come as our high priest. So he's positioning us to be excited, to, to understand and embrace this truth, to love it, to cling to it, to pray regularly because of it, because every time we pray, we'll receive grace, and the rest of the book is going to be unpacking the fact that Jesus is our high priest. So I want to remind you, God has given us Christian community that we would encourage one another in the faith, that we'd point one another back to Jesus. God has given us his word that we'd be reminded of the truth that Jesus is the son of God who's come as our great high priest. And he gives us prayer that on the basis of him being our high priest, you can pray to God every day knowing he hears your prayers. The throne room of grace is open and he will give you grace. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pray and we're going to go into communion. And I want to encourage you to partake of communion. You don't have to be a member here, but I do just ask that you also just wrestle through. And if you need to spend some time praying right now, just asking for grace, maybe asking for forgiveness for, for just various things in your life, I pray that you would do that during this time before taking the elements. Let me pray. Father, we come to you now, and we're just simply moved to praise to praise, to adoration, and to humility. When we realize that, you're, that you have sent your Son, who willingly came for the joy set before him, he came to the cross, so that the throne room of grace would be open, so that we who believe in Jesus would never experience judgment, would never experience wrath, but we would experience the throne of grace. 
And Lord, I pray, I pray that every single person here would believe in you, would know that your son Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and they would know that they can pray to you every single day because Jesus is our great high priest who has opened up the throne of grace so that when we pray, you give grace. You give grace. I pray that we would pray often. Every day, may we pray. May we be a church that prays. May we see that we are weak, that we need your grace in every aspect of, your, of our life. And may we know that your grace is abundant and it never runs out. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.